right, would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we pause and set our gaze and direct our affection towards you. We do this as a family every week to remind our hearts of what's true, to rehearse the good news of the gospel and the structure of our time together. We are being storied, we're being reminded and shaped, and so we're just asking that you would come and meet us in the midst of that, and now particularly in these moments as we lean in to hear from your word, Holy Spirit, would you come and unlock spiritual riches for the hearts of every man and woman in the room? Would you help us to actually believe that we have perfect, permanent access to your heart? It is ours. I pray that we wouldn't live another day like it's not true, that we would, we would live each day as if that were profoundly true for us as individuals and as a community. Would you use this word to unlock those riches? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is occasionally the case that treasure is hidden in plain sight, like it's found in the most unexpected of places. There was one such story about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, there was a, uh, a shed in an industrial park in Scotland. It was a shed that was for um, kind of landscaping materials, and the door of the shed was propped open by this little bust. Here's a picture of the bust that actually, that was covered over and caked in mud and dirt, and it was propping up the, the shed on this industrial park in Scotland. And someone walking in and out of the shed doing their landscaping work paused one day and started to pay attention. It had been there for years, and they're like, what is this? And they started to clean it off and took it to someone who knew, and they found out that it was the marble bust of Sir John Gordon, estimated at two-plus million dollars in value. It was then put on display in the Louvre, and, uh, and so it, it used to prop open the shed door in the industrial park, and now people pay money to come and to gawk at this $2 million bust. And it, it was one of those moments, there's been many like it, where there's a treasure that is hidden in the most unexpected of places. And I think this morning, the Holy Spirit intends to do something. I've been praying and sitting with this text, a text that I've heard in a lot of house churches this week generated a lot of conversation and more questions than it did answers as we're sitting with and wondering, why does the author of Hebrews think that Melchizedek is so important, spend so much time on this really odd character? And I think what we're going to find out today is that Melchizedek in many ways is the bus that's been propping open the door. He is what my friend A.J. Thomas calls mysterious Mel. Melchizedek is mentioned twice in the Bible before this chapter. Once in Genesis chapter 14, he's mentioned for three verses. Abraham has just conquered the five kings of the West, and he's coming back with all of this spoil and his nephew Lot, and he pauses and he meets this very unique character named Melchizedek, and he tithes to Melchizedek. And then he's gone. And then 1,000 years later, 
there's one verse in Psalm 110, a psalm written by David about the messianic king that's gonna come in his line. Someday the Messiah is gonna come in the line of David and what he says is he's going to be a king that executes justice and mysteriously he is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He gets mentioned for three verses, then for a thousand years, silence. He gets mentioned for one verse in Psalm 110, and then another thousand years of silence until the author of the book of Hebrews stops and he looks at the bus that's been propping open the door and has been passed over many times. And I think in this passage, what he's going to do is he's gonna lean down and start to clean it off and go, immeasurable riches for your soul if you don't miss this if you pay attention to what it means that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek I actually think that the author of Hebrews is convinced in the Holy Spirit that us understanding this unlocks outrageous heavenly riches for our soul I believe that understanding Jesus in the order of Melchizedek is the very meat that he was talking about in the previous chapter. He said, you're stuck in perpetual immaturity because you're dull of hearing and you're missing the riches that God has for you. And then in the next chapter, he says, so let's pause, let's dust it off and let's consider together that Jesus is a priest and a king like this mysterious Mel. So we've got our work cut out for us. The author himself has said, This isn't easily explained. And so I'm going to do my very best to make it plain for us. And the way that I'm going to try to do this is in two ways. The first is we're just gonna ask the question, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Who is mysterious Mel and why is it important as it relates to Jesus? And then secondly, we're gonna ask, okay, if that's what it means, why does it matter? And I think if we can arrive there together and clearly articulate why it matters, we can experience the riches of God that this author wants to unlock for us. Are you with me? You up for it? Yeah? Not so overwhelming, everyone. You're like, okay. A priest in the order of Melchizedek, what does it mean? If I were to summarize, it means Jesus is kind of a big deal. But if I were going to make it plain, I think there's three ways that we see the, the shape of Melchizedek come into clarity and the ways that it influences the way that we see Jesus. The first is this. We see that, that Melchizedek is ancient and mysterious. This is going to be really important for the way that Jesus steps into his role. He is anxious, anxious, ancient and mysterious. I don't think he was anxious. He was ancient and mysterious. Okay, verse one and two A. Let's look back at the start of this where he gets introduced for our purposes. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, if you recall the story of Abraham, you'll remember that in Genesis chapter 12, everything had come apart. The Tower of Babel had happened. The people had been spread over the earth. They were divided and rebelling against God. God's answer was to call this one very specific person, Abram, and say, leave your land and your your family. Come to a place that I'll show you, and through you, I'm gonna bless the world. 
So God's plan to heal the world is unfolding through Abram, this man that used to worship the moon in Ur, but is now on a journey with the living God. That's Abram. And in the story that we're seeing here, he encounters Melchizedek, who is a priest and a king from Salem, which is Jerusalem. He lives in Jerusalem as a priest and a king, but here's the mystery. Here's what's so ancient and mysterious. If Abram, having just left Ur, is encountering this person who is a priest and a king in Jerusalem, he is encountering someone 600 years before the priesthood is established. The priesthood is established when Moses sets the people free from the from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and God says, this is the way my tabernacle is going to work and these are the people you're going to set aside of the Levitical line and they're going to serve as priests for me. He says, that's, that's what's going to happen. This is 600 years before that. 600 years before God has ever said, let's establish a priesthood. There is a priest of the most high God and it's 1,000 years before Samuel is going to come and start anointing kings to reign in Jerusalem. So a thousand years before God says, let's have a king in Jerusalem, 600 years before God tells his people, let's have a priest that's making connection between people and God, here is Melchizedek, priest and king living in Jerusalem. Right at the outset, we feel the mystery of this person. It's like a moment where you've been watching a play with a very tight uh, spotlight, and then all of a sudden, the spotlight broadens and you realize there's a lot more characters, a lot more happening than I realized. I've just been following the action here, but God, as it turns out, has been doing way more than we were aware of. So the first note about Melchizedek is that he's, he's kind of like a pinhole poking through that's allowing us to start to realize God is way bigger and grander and working something more than just if we're reading the narrative straight through, we're thinking, okay, he's working with Abram and the whole rest of the world is in trouble. And it's like, well, God is doing something particular with Abram, but he's also still already at work in Jerusalem. He's already paving the way for a bigger plan. You with me? The first note is that he's ancient and mysterious, but the second is this. He is both royal and priestly. He's both royal and priestly. You heard it just there. But let me read it to you again all the way through verse three and pay attention to the fact that he's both king and priest. It says this Melchizedek is king of Salem, priest of the most high God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that as a literary character, Melchizedek burst onto the scene and you don't get introduced to his genealogy. There's been some debate among scholars if, if the author of Hebrews is speaking literal, literally or figuratively here. My read on it is that it's figurative, that it's not that Melchizedek literally had no parents and literally lived forever, but he's saying in the text, this is the way that he functioned, and for that reason, he resembles the Son of God. He is a picture of the Son of God in this way, and the way that he's picturing who Jesus is going to be is he's both priest and king. Now, this breaks categories 
for the people who are reading this letter the first time. They have lived as Hebrews for millennia, understanding that there are very distinct offices that certain people fill to represent God's character to the people. So there are kings that are anointed with the Holy Spirit to exercise justice and to bring order and to make sure that everything operates with beauty and precision. And then there are priests that are profoundly relational and merciful. They don't execute justice. They bring mercy to people and relational connection. They bless them on behalf of God. And never the twain shall meet. There are kings that are anointed by the Spirit of God. There are priests anointed by the Spirit of God, but they are not filled by the same person, except for this one mysterious character that's been propping open the shed door for years. And the author pauses and he goes, look, Melchizedek actually filled both of these offices. He was priest and he was king. He filled the priestly role primarily in doing these two actions in verse six. He received something from Abram and he blessed Abraham on behalf of God. It says this, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. If you've ever wanted a shorthand for what the priesthood does, that's it. The priesthood takes what mankind has to offer their gifts and sacrifices, and makes them acceptable to God. And then on God's behalf, takes the blessings of God and makes them accessible to people. The priest is the go-between. I'll make your sacrifices acceptable. I will make his blessings accessible. Yeah? Melchizedek filled that role in this moment. But he did it as a king with all the power and the authority. And no one else has fulfilled that role in the same way. There's a reason that the offices are filled by different people with different callings and different backgrounds. But what the author of the Hebrews recognizes in this moment is that two chapters earlier, he very briefly said, Jesus is your perfect high priest. And what he knows is that for his original hearers, they would immediately say, that's not possible. That's not possible because all the priests come of the line of Levi. And we know that Jesus is in the kingly line of Judah and kings are not priests. And it's as if he's running ahead and going, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me tell you, God's been doing something bigger and ancient and more mysterious than the way that you've been telling this story. And let me prove it to you from the scriptures. Look at Melchizedek. Jesus is like him, ancient, mysterious, king and priest. You follow one more note, just to say, what, is it, what does it mean that Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek? We're just trying to understand the text right in front of us before we apply it to us. He's anxious and mysterious, he's priest and king, and lastly, he's perfect and he's permanent. He's perfect and he's permanent. This is the last way that he is incredibly different than the priesthood as the people have known it. You see, Right from the beginning in verse four, we see that this, this person is stunning. I love the way the author of the Hebrews just says it so directly. In verse four, he says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. It, if you read the Genesis account slowly, you feel this like a tidal wave. It's this interesting note. I'll just tell it to you briefly because I think it's, I find it interesting. I hope you do. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was taken. He was living with 
these eastern kings, there were four eastern kings that, that kept order in the east. But these five kings from the west came and dominated the four kings in the east and they took all of the people hostage and they took them away, including Lot. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, the five kings of the west are bad dudes. They just wiped out these four kingdoms. Well, Abraham and the men who live in his household put together like a delta force and they go at night and they conquer the five kings. And you're like, dude, I knew that Abraham was faithful and followed God and all this. I didn't know that he led like Delta Force in the night, but he conquered the five kings that conquered the four kings. Abraham is a bad man. Like if you're reading the story, you're like, whoa, Abe doesn't mess around. And then Abraham, who conquered the five kings, who conquered the four kings, is coming back with all of the spoil and he meets the one king from Jerusalem and he gets real low and he goes, take it, it's all yours. You see, the author of Hebrews is going, if you're reading closely, you recognize this man is great. He's greater than the east, he's greater than the west, and by the way, he's greater than Abraham, who you're so proud to be associated with. He made him quake in fear and give like he was giving to God himself. See how great this man was. And then he says it another way in verse seven. He says, look, this man blessed Abraham. He says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. What he's saying is, he is way better than Abraham. He is superior to Abraham. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, not just is he better than Abraham, but he's better than your law. In verse 11 it says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive, arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? You see, he's saying to these Hebrews, every structure that you've had by which you attain access to God, Jesus is better. And the way I'm gonna prove it to you is by pointing at mysterious Mel and say, remember, you were looking through that very tight spotlight, but God was doing something greater and more mysterious even then, greater than Abraham, greater than the priests, Greater than the kings in Jerusalem. There was one that came and he's just been propping up the door of your shed and I want you to pause for a second and dust him off and go, look, there's one who's come and he's going to deliver immeasurable riches to your soul. He is ancient and mysterious. He is priest and he is king. He is perfect and he's permanent. The end game of why Melchizedek is so stunning is because he was permanently in the role. The way that he says it in verse 15 and 16 is this, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. It then says in verse 17, verse 21, and in verse 28, that for this reason, he is a priest forever. Think Sandlot, forever, right? What, it, what he's saying is that this priest is perfect. He's stunning, he's great. He's better than the kings of the east, the kings of the west, better than Abraham. And by the way, he is permanently so. This is what it means that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Ancient, mysterious, priest, king, 
perfect and permanent. He's kind of a big deal. Which still raises the question, okay, Jesus, you're a priest and you're a king and you're of a different order than the one we've been focused on. You're bigger and grander and more glorious. What does it matter? And friends, this is the piece that I've been praying and asking the Holy Spirit that he would communicate to your soul. Because I believe that if we lay hold of this, life is never the same. I'm not overstating it. This isn't like preacher overstatement. I'm telling you the truth. If we lay hold of this, life is never the same. What this means first off is this. We have access to God. We have access to God. Friend, you have, you have access to the creator and sustainer of the universe right now. That's what this means. Let me see if I can show it to you in the text. You see, Jesus fulfilling this role as the priest who receives and blesses does it to the extreme. He's Melchizedek even greater. Melchizedek was better than the kings of the east and the west and Abraham and the law and the priest and Jesus makes Melchizedek quake. He's stunning. He is better. And what we see in verse 21 and 22 is that he fulfills the priestly role beautifully and perfectly. This is the way that it says it. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let me just see if I can make those words make sense real short. Covenant, that's the structure of a relationship. There was the old covenant and the way that God ordered his relationship with God's people, with the temple and the tabernacle and the priest. This is the way we're gonna get along. This is the covenant. There's a new covenant and it's a much greater one with a new priest that's helping the connection. But here's what I need you to hear. The old priests were mediators. They received the offerings of the people and they brought them to God and made them acceptable and they took the blessings of God and made them accessible. They were mediators. There's a different word used here. It's the only time the word is used in the New Testament. Did you see it? The guarantor of a better covenant. Not just a mediator, but a guarantor. The distinction is this. You know, if if a marriage or a business partnership comes to a really difficult spot where there's not communication anymore, there can, be, there can be legal mediation. Someone that's running back and forth trying to find, is there a way for us to, to kind of live at peace here? But the guarantor doesn't go back and forth trying to figure out how we're gonna make this work. The guarantor guarantees it for both sides. The guarantor comes and says, listen, you're weak offerings and sacrifices and prayers that are shot through with brokenness and sin and rebellion, give them to me. And my perfect life and death and resurrection, I'm gonna cover them over in my blood and I'm gonna offer them to the Father. And listen, you don't have to worry or wonder if you're going to be accepted, I guarantee it. I'm taking your offerings and I'm making them acceptable to God. And then he runs to God and in the presence of God, he says, send me to the people. I'm going to make your blessings accessible to them. I'm gonna pour them out. We have to think little beyond Jesus taking on flesh in the incarnation and coming. And in his first great sermon, do you remember how he started? He said, blessed, blessed, 
blessed. I have come from heaven to make the blessings of God accessible. I guarantee the relationship. You will have access with God because of me. Friends, you have access to the presence of God. He is able to do this because he has perfectly fulfilled the role. But not just that. It's not just that you have access to God. Listen, you have perfect access to God. Would you do me a favor right now? Would you ask the Holy Spirit truly in your head and heart right now, say, for the next six minutes, you need the Holy Spirit's help to believe what I'm gonna say to you. Would you ask him for his help? Ask him. You have perfect access to God right now. The way that he says it in this text, verse 18 and 19, verse 18 and 19, he says this. From the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. So the law couldn't do it. It had its shot for centuries upon centuries. It couldn't do it. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you see that word, near? Again in verse 25, he uses the same word, saying, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, your access to God is perfect. You might have the phone number of someone that's like pretty powerful or impressive, or maybe you've got a a few of those, you know. I've got a couple that might qualify in my contact list. And when I text someone like that, I always, I shoot out the text and it's kind of like, you know, when you get time, maybe get back to me. I know you're busy. And I think if it's two, three days, weeks, it's cool, whatever. I'm just throwing it, throwing it out there. God hasn't just given you his cell phone and said, I'll get back to you when I'm free. It's not from a distance that you have access to me. Come into my near presence. You have access to my face at every moment. I'm available to you perfectly and completely because there is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm yours. You have perfect access to God. This is a spiritual truth. This is the meat of the mature. This is what he was talking about in the previous chapter that so many of us are living our lives as though there's these big kind of spiritual truths out there that Jesus paid for my sin and now I can align with the church and one day I'm gonna go to heaven. But meanwhile, I live life basically gutting it out by my own strength day to day. And he's going, listen, you've only ever tasted the milk. You're dull of hearing. Pause and consider this. Right now, friend, you have perfect access to God. You don't have to try to strive and strain and make your life pleasing to him. Look at what he's done on your behalf. You have perfect access to draw near. It's one of those where our faith falters. We simply don't believe it. We live without joy and power in the day to day because we just haven't believed what God has said to be true. We're dull of hearing. We go back to flipping through the the latest Instagram feed and we quickly forget the riches of the fact that right now I am situated and I have the availability to live my life in the rich presence of God moment 
to moment. And listen, he doesn't even stop there. He presses it one step further into the depths of the riches of this promise. He says, not only do you have access to God, not only do you have perfect access to God, you have permanent, perfect access to God. It's not going anywhere. Did you hear it in verse 25? Pay special attention to the word uttermost and always. Consequently, this means what does it all matter? Let me tell you. He is able to save to the uttermost. You may have a footnote in your Bible on the word uttermost that says completely or at all times. It literally means that he is able to save you, actively saving you every moment of your living existence. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the promise is this. Starting right now, and ending never with perfect, uninterrupted access, you get to live with God truly. You see, I, as I've been thinking about my own life, as I've been praying through this text and praying for you, what I've realized is that so many of us work on the industrial grounds in and out of the shed. Like we've got work to do and we're trying to navigate the world. We go, we go to church, we read the Bible, we try to obey what we're reading, We're trying our best. Yet so many of us live lives that are not marked by outrageous joy, love-drenched, spirit-filled. And we go, is this what it was all about? Did like Jesus die to purchase a life for me where I try to do the right things and I try to read my Bible and I try to hold it all together, but generally I'd feel powerless and joyless? The author of Hebrews says, Lay down your milk and feast on your meat. You have permanent, perfect access to God. Some of you right now in this moment go, I don't even know what that would look like. That feels so otherworldly. Listen, I had to wrestle with the fact that in this sermon, we're not gonna unearth all of the realities and the ways that we live into this, but what I was hoping is that it would create a longing in our souls with the recognition that there's more available. What we have tasted of God is not the complete thing. And what he's saying is, listen, would you be willing to graduate into more with me? And the more is not you trying more or being better. It's just more of Jesus. He is available every moment. If you would invite him in, if you would pause at work and with your spouse and with your kids right in the moment and go, I am, I've been, I've been doing this this week. (laughs) It's been so exceptionally surprising to in the moment where I want to lose my cool, spike out of control in this direction or that direction, just to pause and go, I am perfectly in the presence of God right now. Jesus, you are praying for me and you're with me and there's nothing between me and the power and the presence and the joy and the love of God. It's mine. Pausing And considering that moment to moment unlocks untold riches of heaven that are yours. I long for us to experience the riches of having a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
Not just to keep running past the shed door, but to pause and go, oh, you've been here all along. (laughs) And you're mine. And I'm living life like I've got to do it by the sweat of my brow. And the, the priest of Melchizedek is going, listen, I will make your offerings acceptable. I will make his blessings accessible. I guarantee the relationship. Will you come to me? All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will be your priest and I will be your king. I will lead you into joy and fullness. When we understand that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we will finally recognize that we have permanent, perfect access to God. Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to believe. Help us to believe what is true and to live like it's true, to be the sorts of men and women that are more than conquerors because we are lavished with the love of God, enveloped by the presence of God, delivered into the courts of God. We live in the holiest places. It is our identity. It is our destiny if we are in Jesus because he is a king after the order of Melchizedek. If you in this room are not yet a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. Right now in Jesus, what is available to you is perfect access to a God that loves you endlessly. Would you run to him? Run to him. Today is the day of salvation. Experience your home in him. So Holy Spirit, would you communicate this to our souls and help us to live rich, free, joyful lives in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.